Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 248. So we have another acquisition in the electronic space. Dun, dun, dun. They just, they just keep having... The, 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 the numbers that get thrown around in terms of the money that, that just happens, it's, it's, just, it's astronomical in my mind. I don't want to know where you begin with a billion dollars, let alone $35 billion. And what we're talking about is AMD is going to buy Xilinx. And uh, so Xilinx makes FPGAs and a bunch of other stuff. AMD builds uh, computer processors and graphics processors and a lot of other things, too. Um, but yeah, so AMD is going to buy Xilinx, and it wasn't that long ago that Intel bought Altera. And Altera and Xilinx are kind of competitors, and AMD and Intel are competitors. And what I really wanted to know was, what has Intel done with Altera since they you know, bought them? And what I can really find is there's some Intel chips, uh, like not, not even like workstation, but chips designed for like, data centers that have basically an FPGA like on the die so you can write custom stuff um, <laughs> like I, I guess if you wanted like a custom uh, uh, math processing unit or something like that you could write it there um, kind of like an old like you know back way back in day in, in personal computing you like you had a separate ALU oh yeah um, or a different math unit. So I guess that's kind of what they're going with there. Um, and then Intel's also like sharing gate technology with Altera. So like they're starting to like align with like what how their gate topographies are like. Um, and I guess that's probably where AMD is going with Xilinx. Because you're not seeing like Intel branded FPGAs, at least not yet. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I mean, I guess it's just, it's a, it's a, gosh, what kind of, that's not vertical integration. That's horizontal integration, right? Yeah, horizontal. You're picking up a new sector. Yeah. But then when you think about it, yeah, a FPGA has got a bunch of gates and a CPU has got a bunch of gates in the, you know, when you all boil it down. So mm -hmm. I guess sharing, instead of doing the work twice, basically, these companies were separate. You do the work once on improving gate technology or manufacturing or something like that oh i'm sure that they they go extensively through the entire catalog and consolidate everything that they can right you know that would that i mean that only makes sense like pick pick the best technologies from both and then create something off of it um so so have you ever used any xilinx stuff before way back in college i one of my fpga classes was actually all my fpga classes were xilinx um I tend to use Altera just from the... Why did I use Altera for my personal projects? I can't remember why. I think it's actually one of my friends who I originally started using FPGAs. I learned a lot from him. He used Altera. And so I use Altera a lot, mainly because the software, the IDEs are really weird in FPGA land. Mm. Um, and I never really liked Xilinx's package like their free version of the IDE that students could have, it was always kind of crappy. <laughs> the Altera one wasn't that much better, but at least it was better. I had a resource I could go talk to for it, which made all the difference. 
every, every time I've looked at FPGA uh, uh, IDEs, it's always just like, oh god, there's just so much in there. Uh, oh yeah, like uh, MP Lab X and and what what is the one for? Uh, well, I guess it's still MP Lab because I was thinking back when. Um, AVR had all their stuff, but uh, like AVR Studio and stuff like that. Like, even those, those are super jam packed with stuff. Uh, and and FPGA IDs put those to shame <laughs> when you start really <laughs> digging into it. I remember I, I had to do some Xilinx stuff in um, in college, and I had a TA who was doing like a an FPGA. I don't know. It was like a lab. But they didn't explain anything. They didn't even explain that we were using an FPGA. Didn't explain what an FPGA was. They just said, "This here's this board. I'm going to have you do some things on it. And it barely works. And and it was, it was something where, like, he showed us some code. And then if your code didn't compile, he was just like, try it five or six times. Like, just keep pressing the compile button. And... It might work on the fourth or fifth time, you know. Like, I my introduction to FPGAs was so unbelievably awful <laughs> that like it sounds like it. I didn't even. I just like I just knew that there was a thing called a Xilinx board, and it was unbelievably painful. <laughs> what was the class for? It was digital logic, which was one of the biggest jokes known to man. That whole class. Uh, I I scraped by with a C in that class. Oh, it was it was so awful. It was unbelievably terrible. Um, that that was one of those ones where it's like, man, I'm paying three hundred dollars an hour for this. Like it's Ouch. one of those classes that makes you do that. Yeah, it was it was just it was terrible. And and I feel like I feel bad knowing what I know now about things, which admittedly is limited. But like even what I know now, I'm like. Good God! You you think they might have like even gave you an, an introduction to like oh we're trying to get you to learn how to do this so maybe you could do it in the future, you know? Yeah, my my digital logic class that we were learning FPGA we learned on Xilinx as well. Yeah. Like our project at the end was like to make a snake game and hardware on oh, the wow. FPGA. That's cool. So that was a lot of fun. Like you had to make a display driver. I say drivers. They're not drivers. They're they're logic gates driving a a the uh, signals for a you know CRT monitor. Hey, that counts, right? Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Wow, that's awesome. Um, I wish I got to do that. <laughs> I wish I, I need to revisit that again. Is like see how much like can I still remember how to do that? Yeah. So did you just were you just bit banging like a VGA cable, basically? Uh, in the yeah, you would build hardware that could generate the 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 stream basically is a good right. way to put it cool but yeah but it's uh the vga is an analog signal so you had like a a right a right. digital to analog resistor ladder right um to do that and then so you then you just built the pulse frequencies for you know horizontal and vertical sync and all that good stuff and um yeah it was a lot of fun and then you had you had to make a uh, a ps2 interface for a keyboard so you could control the snake on the screen wow it was a lot of fun yeah that, i it was kind of like it was almost like a senior design project but you got to do it as like a sophomore because you spent like basically a whole year working on that were, were you in teams or was it individual it was individual that's cool yeah but i liked it a lot 
I really would. That was actually. I'm actually surprised I'm not more into doing like FPGA stuff. Yeah, I've, I, I've only ever seen you do uh, one FPGA thing. I, I think the LVDS driver on yeah. uh, on what the pinheck board. Pinheck board way back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. We were driving a 1366 by nine. No, 1366 by 768. 768. Uh, LCD monitor from a laptop. Because um, you can buy those monitor or those LCD panels for like dirt cheap. Like you can buy them for like forty bucks. Anyways, so probably see that kind of stuff from the Intel. You know, uh, not from Intel. AMD Xilinx is like consolidating technology is basically what it is. You're not going to get Xy- AMD branded FPGAs, or you're not going to get Xilinx branded graphics processors. That'd be awesome. You just get like what's under the hood will start to. Assimilate, basically. <laughs> Assimilate, I like that. <laughs> okay, so get this. <clears throat> so um, I've, I've got an interesting topic here that I, I kind of want to get your opinion on on some things. Uh, I'm actually working on a, on a project right now. Well, I'm actually... I, 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 multiple projects that involve no. revitalizing old... Working on a project, Stephen? Oh How my God. could you? Like, yeah. No, I mean... I. <laughs> Dude, I just go to work and watch YouTube all day long. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anyone. Uh, no, so, so get this. So I got, I got a couple uh, projects I'm working on right now that involve revitalizing some old, not technology, but, but basically old products that we want to bring into modern electronics. And I'm using uh, air, air quotes. quotes there because it's, you know, it, it's ancient technology that we want to basically make manufacturable even though it is technically manufacturable we want to make it more manufacturable we want to make it small company 2020 manufacturable you wanted to make it so it's more inexpensive to make uh well and and all that comes along with that yes but we don't want to uh and this is this is a word that we use at work we don't want to lose the spirit of the original design uh so you <laughs> couldn't Parker, see Parker's, me but Parker's i was like this is great <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, so so what, what no, I, mean, I know i know where you're getting at yeah. i don't like putting it that way because it sounds very marketing-esque but i do know where you're coming from i do know where you're coming from well but but get this here's here's a here's a decent parallel let's let's say that you were contracted to remake the Nintendo Entertainment System. Let's say they were going to revitalize that and you were the engineer to do it and you were in charge of controller design and uh, you wanted to make it modern. But one of the things, one of the design criteria is that we want the spirit of the original controller to be there. So you want the feel and the buttons to be exactly the same. That's what I mean with the spirit. Like, because it would be very easy to just pick a new solution and then it might feel crappy and it might feel just not right and it wouldn't feel like the original Nintendo controller. So kind of the same juju, I guess you could say, with these projects. So one of the ones that, that's coming to mind right now uses multiple PCBs that are through-hole technology. They have cable assemblies that go in between them and things. Very a la... Uh, well, multiple decades back, kind of 
mentality where, you know, you I have a power supply board and it's its own board and it gets bolted to the back of a chassis over here and it gets cable assembly to multiple different boards or they get daisy chained through multiple connectors and things. So my mindset when I'm thinking about these kinds of things is, okay, I got to make this work for our manufacturing process. And I usually try to think of the guy who's trying to build what I make when I look at this kind of thing. Because, frankly, for the most part, I actually know the guy who's going to make what I design. And and I'm thinking, hey, Billy, I'm just using some some random name here. I don't want to make Billy's life awful. And I have the direct control over being able to do that. So... I don't want Billy to have to sit there and crimp wires and make cable assemblies. I'd rather just make everything uh, more monolithic. You'd rather let Billy just watch YouTube videos at work. Hey, you know, that's the goal for everyone at work right now, right? (laughs) (laughs) So here's some design decisions that I'm kind of approaching this. And I think that this is a good idea if you see something like, say you go to GitHub and you see... Uh, a circuit and you're like, hey, I want to kind of revitalize this or make it. Here's some things to start thinking about when uh, considering like maybe you're going to make some and send this off to a manufacturer. Through hole versus SMT is really a big um, Oh yeah, I, uh, I know this thing. battle. Uh, through hole is expensive, it's difficult, and most people don't want to do it. Uh, especially if it's like through hole resistors and things like that. A manufacturer is going to look at you kind of with a raised eyebrow if you just have a board filled with through-hole resistors when that's not required, right? So if you can push things to surface mount, go ahead and do that. That's a good idea. Actually, I had a conversation with a guy just the other day about doing um, some through-hole and uh, surface mount conversions, and and this particular guy was very interested in through-hole stuff because the spirit was in the through-hole uh, components and that's totally fine. Uh, but I, but I let the guy know, like, you know, maybe the spirit comes with an extra price tag. You just gotta be, you gotta, <laughs> gotta watch out for that one. <laughs> spirit comes with an extra price tag. Casper costs a little extra. Just, just a little bit. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, so, um, the next, the next design decision that's, that's worthwhile keeping in mind is component placement. So say you've got this design, like I mentioned earlier, you've got five boards and you found some fancy way to consolidate them down into one board. But if you start putting components all wacko on two sides of the board and, uh, and, and just going nuts with things, you can actually end up adding a ton of cost into it. So uh, whenever it comes down to manufacturing, if you can shove everything onto one side of a board, that's one setup, that's one stencil, that's one... Uh, manufacturing run that's guaranteed to be your cheapest option one trip one trip to the aoi one yeah down the you basically have to work right right Uh, not only do you have to work okay so i don't i wouldn't say that you have to work you've done the amount of work that people expect as as soon as you put parts on both sides of the board you've doubled the work Okay, there you go. Yeah, that's a different way to think about it, but yeah, yeah. sure. Um, and, 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 you know, I get a lot of quote requests at, at work where I see people, they, they've done like 99% of a good job where they put all these components on one side of a board, but then you flip the board over and there's like two surface mount resistors. 
and uh, and it was just maybe out of convenience or maybe they didn't understand the the impact of that. But I, I a lot of times I have to explain uh, that that you've doubled the amount of setups and the amount of and you significantly increase the manufacturing time on that. And so, you know, even if you have some trouble with routing traces, find a way to get those onto the other side of the board if possible. So uh, the next design decision that's important here is designing for machines. Um, this kind of goes in line with, with the theme we've been talking about for a handful of months now. It's like if you know what your manufacturer's machine's capabilities are or what the requirements are, start from the beginning on that. So and, uh, kind of with the component placement uh, design decision, um, if you're if you're maintaining your clearances, if you're looking uh, looking out for things like selective solderability or wave soldering, and making sure all your components are are obeying all of those rules, you're going to be setting yourself up for a lot more success. So, if you don't know what those design criteria are, ask and ask way early on in the game because it sucks to change things way later. the uh, The next design decision there uh, is watch out for packages. Uh, and what I mean by that is what uh, what component packages. Uh, a lot of times, it's convenient to put twelve oh six size uh, passive components on your board, but they eat up a ton of space, and they're uh, not necessarily the cheapest option. So if you can use an 0603 or an 0402, where an, uh, where a twelve oh six might seem like it's more convenient, well, that's probably a better option. That that. Uh, extends also to like op amps and uh, and other digital ICs and things. Look out because it, you know a TSOP package might actually be you know X dollars, but an SOIC package might be cheaper in the, in that case. And so if you have the ability to uh, shuffle your bomb around and pick uh, low cost components based off a of package, a lot of times that's worthwhile also. So then keeping the spirit of the original. So kind of what I what I go at with this whole concept is I'll take a design and I look at the schematic and I look at the things that are the absolute critical items for uh, keeping the spirit. So in other words, like say I'm uh, doing uh, a revitalized old guitar pedal or something like that. I'll look at the signal path and I'll look at all the things that kind of abuse the signal and massage the signal. And I'll make sure that those components are identical and make sure that everything works exactly the way that that should. But things that just do housekeeping, things that just do like power rails or whatnot, uh, or op amps that don't have critical functions to the tone, like say buffers or things like that. Those are ones that I can massage cost out of and make, turn them into surface mount and make them a lot easier. So kind of keeping that idea of like, what are the old, the things that I absolutely have to keep, I don't know, vintage and special and, and magical, those I won't uh, uh, modify, but everything else then I put through those design decisions that I just kind of worked through. And in, uh, that that one product that I'm talking about that has multiple boards and cable assemblies, I'm already crushing it down into a single board that has one side SMT uh, uh, stuffing and one side through hole stuffing such that it, uh, this 
one product that would have to go through our line five times, if not more for double-sided and, and all these cable assemblies and stuff now goes through our line one time. So just some things to keep in mind if you are going to start taking an old product or taking even, even a new product uh, and kind of revitalizing it for manufacturing. I do like that, that term, though. I'm starting to warm up to it. Keeping the spirit? Keeping the spirit, yeah. yeah. You know, um, we, we actually use that also when it comes to um, our design uh, what is our design meetings. We usually use that word uh, in relation to feature creep. Because so we, we do at, at work, we mainly do modular synthesizers. And modular synthesizers, the way you play them is you physically take cables and you connect signals to other signals and you make sounds based off of how you patch things together. And that is the spirit of modular. The spirit of modular is that you are in control by the, the way that path. you patch things. It's really, really, really easy to start feature creeping and start connecting those wires inside of a module for the player. Uh, but, but we always have to back off and say, well, no, that's not our decision. That needs to be the player's decision. So we always have to keep the spirit of modular alive by saying, like, we could do this for you, but we're going to instead give you the jacks such that if you choose to do it, you do it. Yeah, it makes so. sense. So when you fry a component and the smoke comes out, that's the spirit being released. Well, I mean, yeah, clearly there ain't no spirit no more. Yeah, there's no spirit anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so so actually, I'm, I'm curious. What is the spirit of pinball? Oh... And hardware for me, so for me, it's just how well the play the game plays. Yeah, like the hardware that's underneath, like doesn't matter at all. In the end, that doesn't matter. No one cares. So the, the the whole reason of building a pinball controller is to make that part of the system cheaper, so you can make more margin on the pinball machine. <laughs> <laughs> the spirit is cash. <laughs> the the spirit is through hole MOSFETs, right? Oh, jeez. <laughs> that's where all the magic is. Yeah. No, that's actually that's that's the biggest change we went from, on Pinatar from Pinheck to Pinatar is getting rid of through hole like across the board. The only thing left is connectors. Yeah, you guys you guys went to single side SMT load, right? It's not single side SMT load. Oh. It's actually Pinheck was single side SMT. This is not. Okay. Um, mainly for because we shrunk the board down. It's cheaper to shrink the board down in our case than it is to go to single side load just because the board's just so big to begin with the, the way i've always handled double side smt load which i i do on occasion is if i'm willing to break the seal and go to double side load then i go nuts like then like as soon as you do it like take i don't not 50 percent of your components but start throwing stuff on the back because it, it makes no sense to put one or two components on yeah. the opposite side but as soon as you do put tons over there no you, you are 100 percent correct um but on the our back side we just got some there's some resistor arrays and then some diodes there's probably about 40 components on the back side but the big thing is to remember is if you are going to do two-sided loaded smt is all the heavy components need to be on one side and all the, and then the other side needs to be in quote light components so you don't uh they don't fall off and reflow and make your cm angry 
<laughs> well, and and you know, it's been a while since I've been at Macrofab, but uh, Mac- Macrofab did charge based off of double side load, right? No, not they didn't. Okay, like no, because well, in, in terms of if you're doing production, it, they they might correct in production, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but but yeah, for for prototypes, like because the way it works, where you get a raid with other people, you, you, every panel is double side load for for yeah, Macrofab. basically yeah cool so we have a topic here that we need to stay apolitical on i don't know how we can <laughs> i don't know how we can but we're gonna try so misha our ceo at macfab actually sent me this uh topic and i thought it was enough at least we can just bring it up and chat about for a little bit is because so the, the apocalypse election. is happening happening next week right Yes. The moon is turning to blood and the oceans are drying up. And uh, all the plants align and big laser beam fires out all to the sun. Right, right, right. Yes. Uh, so the election is in, in the United States. I should preface because we're a world, we're in a worldwide podcast. Um, the election in the United States for present is next week. Mm-hmm. Actually, like six days after this podcast comes out. Um so one thing is, it's just very interesting is, so the last four years, as engineers and manufacturers here in the United States, we've been basically decoupling from China for four years. And I just kind of want like some thoughts and stuff on like what happens if like Biden, so Biden is one of the present uh, candidates and then Trump is the other candidate. And there's, there's a lot of other candidates, but those are the two that are probably going to win. It's one of those two. Um, so if Biden wins, are Trump's tariffs gone? Will he keep them? What happens if Trump wins, et cetera, et cetera? Or because they, they, those tariffs went in place in early 2019. So we are coming up on close to two years with these Chinese tariffs. Um, so yeah, I, 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 a good thing would be like, so how's it? How's the current tariffs affected you? I guess. Well, I mean, a lot that we purchase at uh, at work gets uh, gets affected by the tariffs. Uh, so, uh, and and actually, I, I have a, a story just from the other week. In fact, I think I talked about it last week podcast or week before. I was talking about um, some sheet metal quotes that I got, and and just for fun, I got a handful in the states and I got a handful in China. And uh, the Chinese quotes, some of them were really attractive in terms of the cost. But then as soon as you start adding up shipping and then 25% tariff on that, they start getting in the same ballpark as uh, the American uh, uh, quotes that I got. And then you start weighing the question of like, well, okay, so I can talk in the same time zone to this person. There's not a language barrier. And... I can just drive over to the place and pick it up, you know, at least for like, you know, the, the small quantity stuff that I was dealing with. So, uh, uh, we, we deal with it quite a bit at work when doing quoting and, and things of that sort where like now we kind of have to just add this arbitrary 25% to, uh, anything that goes, uh, for our quoting, which it's annoying, but you know, it's there. Yeah. For on my end, um, I'm not even going to dive into Macrofab, just my personal projects like Pen, like Pinatar. One of the big things I did with Pinatar is none of it is sourced in China because I didn't want to deal with that stuff. Mm. So it's all Taiwan, Japanese, 
components or uh, Malaysia and uh, PCBs out of Taiwan. So, um, and you do that by looking at, you know, uh, country of origin of components. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting is that most, most um, distributors don't tell you what that is until like you order the part, which I always think is kind of weird. Hmm. But I guess they, do, they don't know if they have to order, but they have stock. Because like Arrow, Arrow is the distributor that will tell you what their COO is, chief uh, country of origin for a component is that they have on you know their warehouse floor. I just wish more more distributors would do that. Hmm. Hear that, DigiKey and Mouser? <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you can find it out, right? Yeah. Well, a lot of times you can contact the comp- the manufacturer of the part, and they will tell you. But. But they ha- but component manufacturers have to put it on the components. So you get it when you get the parts, you can tell where it came from. But usually most manufacturers, oh, most distributors, I should say, don't advertise what that part, where that part's from. Um, that's what I've been doing is just like reducing how much stuff I use at China in terms of component uh, sourcing. And there's some stuff you can't, you know, avoid, but try to do it as much as possible. But um, so, so yeah, I don't I don't know what will happen because I don't think um, I did some googling and I couldn't find a source of basically if Biden wins, what happens to the tariffs? Because we know if Trump wins, it's just going to be continuation, business right? as usual, right? Yeah. Oh, here's my prediction: if if Biden wins, I think Biden would get rid of the tariffs, and only this might be a little too political here, but but only for for the fact that they're Trump's tariffs. Just because, like, Trump bad, get rid of tariff. That's that's the, the concept. There. I mean, it, Trump did the same thing with all the uh, stuff that Obama did. If it was not a law, mm-hmm. like it was an executive order or something like that, which is what these tariffs... I don't... Because the tariffs weren't even... They didn't go through Congress, did they? Uh, I Frankly, I don't know. I don't remember either. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, but 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 I do I do think it's that black and white. Yeah, yeah. I would I would put money on that. If Biden wins, tariffs go away. If Trump wins, then business as usual. Yep. Um, Biden does have a thing on his website called "Made in America" plan. Hmm. I didn't look at that yet. Um, I need to check that out. I I asked Misha for a topic like 15 minutes before the podcast, and he sent me this, and so um, I did not get a chance to read that section of biden's website but again uh i haven't seen a political candidate for presidency that's actually said or actually did what they said they were going to do it's been quite a long time so i don't know what he actually what biden promises in the made in america plan i don't know yeah i'll have to check that out myself because i'm, I'm yeah. curious what what his thoughts on that are and what that looks like yeah because I really want to know is is does our twenty five percent tariffs go away? That oh, that's actually the other topic I want to talk about is my biggest beef with the current tariffs um, is th- it's interesting what because we went we had a whole podcast talking about like what they covered and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's because they cover components and like subassemblies, but they don't mm. cover. I think we actually did complain about this before. Um, <laughs> I remember talking about this, but they don't cover fully built things like toasters. But components for toasters, it 
has 25% but, on it. But bagel pin ICs, that would have a 25% Yeah, turnaround. it does if it came from China, right? Right. Um, yeah. And so it's just stuff like that's like if they if it if the tariffs were really meant to help let's say everyone in America in terms of like blue collar workers or or assemblers or manufacturers it would be all like anything that was related to an overseas toaster right because what the ha- what happens is it makes it so that the little guy that's only can afford to build sub assemblies in China now gets hit with that 25% tariff but the big box toaster maker can just build them in China all, all you know fully built and then ship them here with no tariff. So I don't know if that's changed in terms of the full built stuff is, is taxed to now or tariff now. What am I, what are you saying? It's a tariff. I mean, it's a tax. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I think the, uh, what doesn't the constitution handle those separately? Tariff what? and tax. Yes, it does. Technically, the only thing that they that the federal government can get money from is tariffs. But whatever, we already crossed that bridge a hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, actually, I'm looking at I'm looking at Biden's page now about uh, the Biden plan to ensure the future is made in all of America by all of America's workers. That's the title of the page, and it's considerable. It's very long. If you want to go check that out, um, just I guess JoeBiden.com, and then you can you can search through and find that. Yep. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of stuff about uh, Trump's tax cuts, and then how to. Uh, it's all the same in the end, right? Bring jobs to America uh, from both sides, right? Both sides say that. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't read it yet, so I'm going to read it probably after this podcast. Just see what's going to happen with tariffs or whatever. Because I, I did search like Biden Trump tariffs, and like there's no official word on like what he would do. Yeah. So. Yeah, I guess you never know. Maybe he'll just hang on to it and just like, yeah, this worked. Yep. If it did, I don't know. I don't know either. All right, let's get out of this. <laughs> Go away, election. Yeah. We bye bye. We'll see you next week. Yep. Uh, so I I I got a just a quick little uh, news report that um, kind of goes back towards manufacturing, but it just kind of beware of single sourcing because we got bit by this. Um, well, in terms of our manufacturing, not our own products, but uh, the a, a, uh, a Japanese uh, semiconductor fab of AKM, uh, the name AKM, I'm not even going to pronounce or pretend to pronounce what that uh, stands for, but uh Caught it, the factory actually caught on fire. Um, yeah, I'm looking at the picture. That does not look good. No, no, it caught on fire on the uh, on what is it, October 22nd is when this news article came out. The AKM factory uh, caught on fire, and at this factory they manufacture codecs, uh, DACs, and ADCs for the audio industry, and they are a single source of that, and they are completely shut down now, and the world is just scrambling to purchase. The uh, the um, codecs that they per- that they manufacture there because they're uh, some of the better ones or some of the best ones. So they're you're talking about like an audio codex chip? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. right. So uh, and and we have certainly been impacted um, by that because we do uh, we do manufacture with those parts. And uh, what's interesting is if, if 
this this website we have a link that we can post that just it's a Japanese website that's translated to English which if you've ever done Japanese to English translation it it's a really difficult language to translate word for word but in the first paragraph they say let me see here the fire broke out uh yeah the uh the fighting the fire was difficult due to firefighters complaining of skin abnormalities uh which I don't know if you've ever if you've ever seen the stuff that's used at semiconductor fabs like there's some nasty chemicals there so it's like uh I don't I don't know if that's a poor translation or something to be scared of there you know uh, so we'll post this this article if you want to check it out. Um, I do like how it, yeah, translating Japanese to English is it's just like Chinese to English. It's just it's just the languages don't are not comparable structure wise. Yeah, and so you get really weird stuff like also is does not stand the prospect of extinguished in the twenty two days midnight current older than time. <laughs> Actually, there's a there's a really great website if you if you ever bored uh, called Translation Party. Uh, oh yeah, check that out. That's great. Basically, you write an English state uh, sentence. It translates it to Japanese, and it's then it takes that back. It translates it back to English, and it goes forward and backwards until it reaches an equilibrium. And sometimes it takes hundreds of forwards and backwards, and it just butchers the sentence. It's check it out. It's fun. Um, so, so the, the the moral of the story here is be careful about single sourcing your critical components um, in your in your devices because if you pick a codec that's manufactured in one location, even if it's the best in the world, like you're down right now. Well, then how do you do? You just sell a product with an inferior code, but you'd have to do a whole new design most of the time. Yeah, exactly, and that's kind of scary. Yeah. So, uh, well, just. What this what this means is when you're doing your initial design work, uh, contemplate using a codec that is uh, fabbed in multiple locations. Ah, uh, so the second paragraph here actually says what it's what the uh, the skin irritant skin abnormal abnormalities. Ab that's how. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Ooh, that's a word. Um, comes from <laughs> it's actually hydrogen chloride generated from burning vinyl chloride that was used on coating electrical cables in the factories. Well, they said that's what the offensive odor is presumably from. Uh, well, hydrogen chloride would also cause like your skin to like get eaten. So, a small amount of flammable materials used in manufacturing high density integrated circuits are placed inside the building and although a small scale explosion may occur there is no danger <laughs> at least no one was injured that's a good thing yeah yeah wait this complaint about skin abnormal and then no one was injured okay whatever well that's the firefighters so no one was injured in the fire itself i think ah gotcha 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 yeah so yeah keep an eye out for for that it sucks uh, designing stuff is not fun because you have to contemplate so much more than just the design. Yeah. Well, especially if you're designing and you're maintaining the life cycle of the product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because sometimes that's a different that's a different uh, job, depending on the company and whatever. But yeah, if you're maintaining, if you're the design, if your designer and the person who's maintaining the life cycle is the same person or on the same team, stuff goes a lot better. Well, and also whenever you see things like this happen where 
you know, a few days ago when this happened and you see it pop up on the news, start searching for stock and buying up stock as soon as you can, you know? Yeah. A stock of your components. All right. Last topic for today. It's on Tesla self-driving. And so there was a kind of like a uh, goofy video that was on this subreddit called Wall Street Bets. Um, Some people might know what that subreddit is. Some people might not. It's basically a bunch of uh, people posting about like their really bad trades on Wall Street. It's about the best way I can put it. Hmm. Um, Get some really good memes out of it. But it was right when Tesla announced their new self-driving stuff that they were rolling out to some customers. Basically, like the drivers that that they thought were safe enough to get it got this update. (laughs) <laughs> it's like a beta, I guess. Okay. Um, and so this is like the self-driving portion. Just like it was, it was thinking some flags in the distance were like uh, street lights. Okay. Okay. So it wouldn't let the car move. Right. Um, anyways, the, there was a comment that was imagine, imagine that self-learning that there's just there's no self-learning or autonomous driving. It's just a bunch of dudes in like a call center that's actually driving your car around. <laughs> and this actually got me thinking is kind of uh, kind of like the military with drones, right? Where they're just yes, in a bunker in Arizona or something. Yeah, that, this has actually got me thinking is what if this was the actual end game for Elon Musk? Because he's building because Elon Musk owns Tesla and he's launching all these satellites to make. I think it's called Starlink, which is that low orbit, uh, low latency satellite Internet. Mm-hmm. You could drive someone else's car anywhere in the world using Starlink. <laughs> uh, you mean like you would have like the the technology to do that is what you're yes. saying. Yeah. Yes. And so instead of putting all this effort into making AI, what if you just had just ginormous like you, you could work from home and then do your Uber. Uber from home. Huh. You know, I would totally buy a cabbie hat and just wear it at my uh, at my desk at as desk? I drive someone's car with my WSAD on my keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? And so this has actually got me thinking is like, so when you're in a taxi cab mm. or, or an Uber or whatever, like there's someone there driving you. If that person wasn't there, but he was still, or he, he or she was still controlling the car, like... They can make some decisions because their life is not at risk here. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? Right. Like, they might try to slip into traffic more, like, quicker or whatever. Yeah, I guarantee you they would. <laughs> yeah. Also, a flat screen in front of you does not give you enough uh, cues about uh, oh, it, reality. Oh, no, it'd, it'd be a VR goggle set. You know what? I, you, I actually, um, you remember... Uh, gosh, you'd be one with the car. Uh, and, um the, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie on the on the Mars um, with uh, Terminal, not Terminal. Uh, gosh, which now I got to look it up. Now everyone's probably yelling at me, but like, oh, it's this movie. Um, oh, wait, the one where they go on. It's uh, Total Recall. Total Recall. Total Recall. I was thinking Terminal Velocity, but that's not no. Uh, Total Total Recall. Yeah, where they have the the uh, the cab drivers, where it's got like that Android in the in the front, but like somebody could put on VR goggles and then get that that Android's vision. Yes. What what were those called? Um, uh, taxi. 
what are they called like Jerry cabs? Johnny cabs. That's what it was. Johnny cabs. So, so we have this thing called mechanical Turk. You know what mechanical Turk is? No, I do, do not you? know. So mechanical Turk is like a, it's a, you make a repetitive task and then you farm out that task to a, a, a program called mechanical turking. Okay. Um, so like if you took a bunch of data and you just needed someone to pull this one line out of the data and you, there wasn't a very good way to uh, make an AI to do it or a script to do it, like it took a little bit of context for someone to do it. You would set up this rule set and instructions for people to mechanically turk it and they get paid per action basically okay um so yeah what if we had self-driving cars but they were not self-driving they were driven over starlink by a bunch of mechanical turks it still applies they're driven by a self somewhere right that's true yeah <laughs> i don't know that's it okay so in terms of the level of like uneasiness in terms of uh, uh, self-driving cars like I want to drive my car I feel uneasy if a robot drives my car I would feel extremely uneasy if someone halfway around the world was driving my Uber <laughs> <laughs> because you're totally right like you know if something goes wrong well what do they care <laughs> right? oh they just log into the next car <laughs> log, yeah, yeah. and it drives past your wrecked car yeah. <laughs> no it pulls up to your wreck expecting you to get out of the wreck yeah into that get, car. get into that one <laughs> uh yeah no that sounds like an awful idea parker yeah it's pretty bad i just thought that's like where i first thought of it. i'm like man that it, could, it would technically work it just yeah, getting people on board with a computer driving you around is going to be the first hurdle. What if what if Microsoft Flight Simulator was actual airplane somewhere? You no, know, <laughs> is is I had a friend who tried to to make me believe that back in the day, like back when I was like eight years old. Really? Yeah, <laughs> that's great. But then he was no, he was uh -uh. like. Yeah, exactly. Uh-uh, time's affinity. I double dog dare you to crash that plane into the mountain. <laughs> you kill a bunch of people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, let's wrap up this podcast. Yeah, I think so. Yep. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy.